Good evening and blessings to you all for this Bible study live uh, in person as well as online. So good to see you all. Let us bow our heads and let us begin to pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, praise you, love you, honor you, uh, trust in you, God. We ask that you would just bless us and benefit us as we begin to go through this study. And God, illuminate our hearts, our minds, our ears, and our lives. And we thank you for Jesus' name. Now, God, there are people who are going through different health challenges, God. We ask that you would look on those that we know, our friends, our loved ones, and that you would touch them name by name and one by one. All the ones that we know, as well as the ones that we don't know, God, just step into their situation and do what only you can do. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, man, so good to see you and have you. Hope you had a wonderful Valentine's Day. If you did, I hope you were able to celebrate love in some way, whether it was just you loving yourself, God loving you, or the love of a relationship. However uh, you do it, uh, I hope you got a chance to enjoy yourself. So we're going to uh, cover Sunday's sermon, and let me just go right into putting that up, and that's A love without boundaries. Love without boundaries. So there, uh, there's a lot of things that I I was kind of thinking of because the uh, previous week I had talked about a love like no other, and so this has become a love uh, without boundaries. Uh, Another idea was a love without bounds, having no limitations to our love. And so the only possible person that could be speaking of is God. He's the only one who can love without limitation, love without boundaries. And so we are learning to rest in that kind of love, a love that knows no bounds. Now, we often don't uh, know how to process that because we don't love without boundaries. Most of us have limitations on our love. Another, uh, another word is unconditional love. Our love usually comes with conditions. And so when it comes to God loving us unconditionally, it's hard for us to fathom that. And so, but we still have to, to understand that God's agape love is uh, seamless, limitless, and boundless. There's no boundaries to it. He loves us to the point of dying for us. So what we've been doing, we've been looking at uh, Song of Solomon, or also known as Song of Songs. And uh, one of the reasons why uh, different uh, versions title it different things, uh, Song of Solomon uh, suggests that Solomon was the writer. Some scholars do not believe he was the writer. Uh, He was just the one who helped collect the poems. Uh, So some call it the Song of Songs because it was just uh, poetic um, songs. Uh, others call it the Song of Solomon because they believe it was actually uh, the, one of the love relationships that Solomon had. So I'll go back to referring uh, either either way. This is the ones that we looked at. We looked at the ESV, the ERV, and commentaries. So the ESV is the English Standard Version. And so everywhere in the scripture where we have ESV beside that is the English Standard Version. The rest of the scriptures are out of the ERV, which is the easy-to-read version. Um, I've read through the Bible in the ESV. I haven't read through it in the ERV, but the ERV is similar to the message in some of the other ones where it just makes it easier to read. So 
Uh, I will I do encourage you to look up uh, many different type of versions when you're trying to study. Let me actually uh, type in something that will help you. There's something called BibleHub.com. I'm going to put that in, in the comments. And also, uh, BibleGateway.com. You'll see, you should see both of those uh, links pop up in the comments. But those are um, hubs that you can get any version you want. You, you, you'll see the, the verse in one version and you can read several different versions. So even if you're not going to read through the whole uh, book or chapter in one version, you can get several different versions. And what happens is, what I do is, I'll just say what I do is, I will look at a verse and I'll look at it in several different versions and then I'll make up my mind what I think the verse is trying to say. Because some versions say things different and then you, when you look at it in all those ways. So both the Bible Gateway, Bible Hub is the one when you put the verse in, It'll show all the different versions. Bible Gateway, you have to pick different versions. But both of those are very good in uh, your study. So tonight we're uh, focusing on ESV and ERV. Uh, what I like about the ESV is it is very similar to the King James, and it has that poetic language that, uh, that you don't lose. A lot of times when you get into the Message Bible, the ERV, the Good News Translations, they're so modern English that you, you lose some of the Shakespearean old English that the King James brings, which I uh, like. Some people totally don't like it. They don't like all the these and the vowels. It's confusing to them. I kind of like the cadence of that. So the ESV uh, is similar to that, but then it, it is a little closer translated to the Greek and the Hebrew. So enough of that spiel, but you know, I always bring you a little extra when we come to Bible study. So this is what we've been uh, working with. We've been working with the sensual, the spiritual, and then I added the scientific. So uh, last time it was sensual, spiritual, and then the historical. And I still do a little historical, but I added a piece of the scientific because we want to kind of understand, even though we're trying to understand our spirituality, we also need to understand our humanity, which includes our sensuality and includes our sexuality. And uh, we need to understand those things because uh, when the devil attacks us, he attacks us based on our humanity. And our humanity has things like anger, uh, lust, uh, jealousy, envy, strife, all those things that can, we can be triggered by. So when we understand that we all go through these things, it helps us not to be too harsh on ourselves and understand that God loves us uh, without boundaries. He loves us in our states of humanity when we're just who we are, even when we're just functioning out of the sensual or the sexual. Now, of course, we should be pushing toward the spiritual, but God loves us where we are. So uh, taking some time to look at that and uh, kind of deconstructing the idea that everything in the Bible is spiritual only. And it's just not true. It's not historically factual. 
the Bible is a library. It's a collection of books. Now, when you look at the collection of books, it tells an overarching story that we call the gospel or the good news of God sending his son to die and redeem man. That's the overall story. But it's not like one person sat down and wrote all that out from Genesis to Revelation. No, it is a collection of books. It is 40 different authors over 1,500 years. And later, they begin to collect these books and see the commonality of them, and then they put together what we call the Bible. So not everything was written to be purely spiritual. They all have spiritual context because God inspired it, but some things are just what they say. And it's okay when you're studying the Bible, reading the Bible, to look at them and see what it just really says, and then take it to the spiritual context of it. So we're going to take some time to talk about the sensuality of it because it's good for us to know that God created the pleasure of sensuality and sexuality actually for us, but it was supposed to be in the confines of a marriage. In other words, the best uh, version of it is in a marital covenant relationship. Now, can other uh, expressions be enjoyed? Yes, but usually there comes with conviction uh, some issues. The highest, best goal is in a marital covenant relationship. So that's what we preach it from. So me as a pastor, understanding that I have singles in my ministry, that I have gays in my ministry, I try not to pressure anyone and make them feel less than, but we're just saying that we believe the highest goal that God had in mind was male-female marital relationship. We understand that other things happen we're not here to judge. We're Deliverance Temple. We, uh, but, we, but I still, as a leader, I still want to point us to what I believe uh, God's best is. And we are all growing and trying to get better at that. So let me speak to us singles for a second. It's very difficult sometimes when you are in, uh, you're up in age and you're trying to live a Christian life, but you're uh, your body, your sensuality, your sexuality is coming from another place, a place from where you, who you used to be. And sometimes there's a struggle and there's a wrestle between where you're going and who you used to be. And sometimes church is not the safest place for you because you just get beat up, beat up, beat up. So we try not to be that type of church where you're just constantly being beat up. But we also want you to try to rise above the level of your sensuality and push towards spirituality so that you can keep things in control. Because what we do know is that when you lack discipline in any area of life, specifically as it relates to your sensuality and sexuality, you can cause a lot of trouble, a lot of damage, a lot of consequences can come. And a lot of churches get, uh, I won't say destroyed, but they get messed up because there begins to be a lot of sexual things that happen in the church. And then the world looks at us and be like, y'all crazy. I, I ain't fooling with y'all. Y'all y'all swapping wives and doing this and doing that. And so while we believe in grace and mercy, we still want to have a level of righteousness to our walk. Uh, in other words, before we move on, I should not be the pastor that is just assumed he sleeps with all the women in the church. We know that goes on in some churches, but I don't want that to be in our church. There ought to be a certain level that we're trying to ascribe to. Now, if I, as the leader, am pressing toward those levels, you as the pew mates ought to be pressing toward those levels too. 
You shouldn't be like, well, hey, I'm not the pastor. I can do what I want. No, you ought to try to discipline yourself and for, for the reasons of your spiritual journey. All right, so let's look at this uh, piece of commentary. This comes from the ESV. It says, according to the most common interpretation, the Song of Solomon is a collection of love poems between a man and a woman celebrating the sexual relationship God intended for marriage. So uh, like I, I, I said that the idea of sexuality was supposed to be in a marital covenant relationship, marriage. And so this book celebrates that. The spiritual implication is that the scripture talks about Christ being married to the church. So marriage is a very uh, important theme all throughout scripture because it's it's spiritual. It's the closest thing that replicates the love that God has for his people. Uh, through the marital covenant is that the, the idea that children come from a marital covenant. Of course, children can come from people who aren't married, but the highest goal was uh, children coming from a marital covenant. And then we see things like uh, the children of God, the sons of God, so that reproduction in a loving relationship. So that's the idea. So it, it's brought up a lot. So I, I will say this, uh, and I think I've heard this said before, and I think it bears repeating because it'll help us with context. Fire is one of the greatest things that the earth has given us, but fire has to be kept in its proper context. Fire in a fireplace is amazing. Fire in a water heater is amazing. Fire in the stove, in the oven, in the grill is amazing. Fire in the lighter is amazing. Uh, the fire that uh, fires the pistons in the engine is amazing. The problem is when the fire gets out of those things that contain it, when the fire gets out of the fireplace, gets out of the oven, gets out of the stove, out of the grill, Fire can damage, it could ravish things, it could tear things to pieces. Our sexuality is very much like fire. When it's in its proper context, it does the best uh, benefit for us. It can be celebrated, but once it gets out of the proper context, it can cause a lot of damage. So there's nothing wrong with fire. Many times it's wrong with how it's contained, how it's uh, started. Uh, Specifically, forest fires, they can, sometimes are started with the smallest of spark. Uh, someone in the forest, they have a cigarette, and they just throw the cigarette butt down, and then the next thing you know, there is literally millions of dollars worth of damage in forest fire because a little spark caused something great. So our sexuality is very much the same way. It can get out of hand. Many of us have experienced in our own life it getting out of hand. Trying to pull it back can be very, very difficult. Hopefully, we are to the age now where we understand how to discipline it. And so the question is, well, why would you talk about it? Why would you teach it? Not just because it's February, but also because we have a generation coming up behind us and generations coming up behind us with children and grandchildren. And what we can do, we can help them navigate the obstacles of life and the obstacles of their human sexuality by telling them our mistakes and giving them tools in how to grow. 
So never look at your life and just say, oh, man, I, I messed up there. I'm not going to worry about it. No, always use it to disciple someone else. So we are trying to elevate marriage in this, uh, this study that we're doing. We're going to go again to the scripture. God established uh, marriage, including the physical union of a husband and wife, and Israelite wisdom literature treasures this aspect of marriage as the appropriate expression of human sexuality. So what we're saying is, based on what we've studied and seen from the Bible and the scriptures, we believe that the best expression of human sexuality is in a marital relationship, a male-female marital relationship. Doesn't necessarily mean that everything outside of that is absolutely sinful. Many churches will, listen, if you're not married, everybody else is going to hell. So I'm not going to come at it from that angle, but I will say that what we should do is celebrate the, those who have disciplined themselves and have gone down the road of choosing marriage, choosing abstinence. I, I will abstain and discipline myself and try to save myself for marriage. And then when I'm in the marriage, I'm going to try to stay committed to a monogamous relationship. So what we don't want to do in embracing everyone is poo-poo on marriages. Marriages ought to be honored in the church. And sometimes you have so many singles in ministry that they almost look down on the married people and don't celebrate them because they get jealous and mad at them. And like, look, you always talk about staying out of beds and you got somebody. So what we, we don't want to do that. We want to do what the scripture does. The scripture elevates and celebrates marriage. We don't want to dog anybody else on their path. We want to help people grow, but we really do want to celebrate marriage and the love relationship because it reflects God and his church. All right. So having said that, that gets us into uh breaking down how the uh, ERV breaks down the speakers of each uh, phrase in Song of Solomon. We're going to be working in chapter two. So she speaks first in this uh, uh, chapter two. She starts off speaking first. And it says this, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valley. The uh, spiritual implications. So today we have to start with the spiritual because that is a phrase that is normally only seen as talking about Jesus, Rose of Sharon, Lily in the Valley. Many of you have heard people say Jesus is the Lily of the Valley. So the spiritual connotation of her speaking that is she is saying, I am a Rose of Sharon. I am a Lily of the Valley. One of the uh, questions that we ask ourselves in studying this is that in the previous chapter that we went over last week, it seemed like every time the male spoke, it reflected Jesus. This is the first time we see where the women, the woman is speaking and it reflects Jesus. So before it seemed like we as the church is the woman and the man is Jesus or God. But the woman says something that's connected to Jesus. So the question is why? Why is there a sudden switch up? And then as I begin to pray through it, just the spiritual understanding just jumped out to me, which tells us really the story of the gospel. 
She is able to say I am because she invited the I am in her. She is the valley. She is Sharon. When he comes into her life, he makes her the lily in that valley. In other words, he becomes the lily in the valley. He becomes the rose of Sharon. So we understand valleys are the dry place. Lilies shouldn't be growing in a valley. So that's the beauty of that. Uh, the rose of Sharon, you have to do some extra study. Sharon is, uh, was a place that was known as, as a low place. It would not have been the place you would expect roses to come from. And so I talked about on Sunday, like a rose in the ghetto or uh, like the group that I'm a part of, a concrete rose, a rose that grows up out of the concrete, coming out of an obscure place that it shouldn't, beauty is coming out of that. Well, when we invite Jesus into our life, we are the dirtiest of dirtiest. We're the filthiest of filthiest. The scripture says all our righteousness is as filthy rags. There's nothing beautiful or lovely about us, but when we connect to him and he grows in us, he becomes the lily in our valley, he becomes the rose of Sharon. We are the ghetto, but he becomes the bright spot. So it uh, going back to it, she makes a statement, I am. And that's why when we confess things and we confess I am, we are confessing the great I am inside of us. So when I say I am great, I am special, I am wealthy, I am declaring what the I am is in me. So that should give us hope. And strength. Let's look at the, the commentary from that. The lily is a very noble plant in the east. It grows to a considerable height, but has a weak stem. The church is weak in herself, yet is strong in him that supports her. Matthew Henry commentary. So uh, the scripture says, let the weak say I am strong. We are weak. We don't have strong roots, but because of Christ, our roots are entangled in him. We uh he is the vine, we are the branches. So when we boast, our boast is in Christ. I am nothing apart from Christ. I am everything with Christ, with Christ in me. One scripture says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So like the woman, when we understand that his love for us is without boundaries, we can have confidence, or like I often like to say, Godfidence, in who we are, not in anything else, but in God and who God is in us. All right, so let's look again with uh, him speaking. He says, my darling, among other women, you are like a lily among thorns. So he makes confirmation of that. And he's saying, basically, since I've come inside of you and I've loved you and we are in this love relationship, you have stood out amongst all the other people um, in in some of the study I did on this particular verse, it spoke of the wickedness of the age and how that when Christ comes in us and his love is in us and our love is in him, then the righteousness of God is given to us as a gift. The scripture says our righteousness comes from him. It's as a gift. So we stand out amongst thorns. We're like a lily amongst thorns. We're like a rose amongst thorns. When, uh, I first moved into my old house. The uh, the people there were green thumbs. They had a lot of uh, greenery. They had tulips on one side of the house. They had roses on the other side of the house. And I was like, oh, oh, that's great. The tulips came up every year. But the roses, I didn't understand how much work it took to get the roses to come. 
because the roses grow amongst the thorns. And once I did try to go over and do that, I got my hands stuck. And I was like, man, forget this. All these weeds grew up around it. But invariably, every year, one rose would find a way to grow amidst all the jungle of everything else that was going around. And we're the same way. When God comes into our life, we become a rose among thorns. Now, what we shouldn't do is look down on the thorns. But what we should do, we should be the rose that would make the thorns say, hey, I'm connected to the same thing you're connected to. I should be able to produce that too. We should encourage people to become roses in the middle of negative situations. Do you know someone prospered in the pandemic? Someone had great creative ideas in the pandemic. Someone got closer to God in the pandemic. We should be the people that people look at and say, hey, you didn't go down, you went up because you're like a uh, rose among the thorns or a lily among the thorns. The, the beauty of that, we'll go to it again, is that he is speaking. So he is saying and complimenting her for that. So how beautiful would it be that God is saying to us, amongst all the negativity is going around, you're a bright spot. I wonder, is God saying the same thing about Deliverance Temple? Deliverance Temple, amongst all the stuff that happened in the last few years, you are a shining spot amongst all the things that are going on, all the political unrest, the civil unrest, all the sickness and disease. Uh, Deliverance Temple, I think that you are doing well. That's what we want to hear. At the end of our life, we want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. But we even need to hear things now as we go through the journey. And when God is saying to us that he is pleased with us, that means we are blossoming against all odds. Okay, so she speaks again and she says, my lover, among other men, you are an apple tree among the wild trees in the forest. Now look at the banter back and forth. She begins to declare, okay, I am a lily in the valley. She's saying it based on his love for her. And then he speaks and says, yes, you are a lily among the thorns. And then she says, but you are an apple tree among the forest. In other words, that's how we should be relating to God in our spirituality. When God gives us credit, we throw it right back to him. Andre, I'm proud of you. Well, I thank you, God, for being proud of me, but I couldn't do it if it wasn't for you putting breath in my body and starting me on my way and giving me the activity of my limbs and, and allowing me to be in my right mind. There should always be a reciprocal praise. So we should never allow God to outdo us because we understand that anything we got, we got it because of God. So yes, God may bless me because he's pleased with me, but the only reason why he could be pleased with me because he did all the work. All I did is believe. We should never take the credit. So even though the woman is hearing these compliments, she's turning them right back to her lover and saying, listen, you, you are it. You are amongst the forest. And I'll, I'll bring that up so we can get some spiritual Aldi out of that. About my, love, my lover, among other men, you are an apple tree among the wild trees in the forest. In other words, the only thing bringing life and bringing fruit from that I could feed off of, everything else in the forest is thick trees. In other words, the forest exists for the forest. The trees in the forest, that's why they try to preserve forests, because the trees in the forest 
they actually is an ecosystem that preserves the forest. It makes the forest better. But an apple tree would be to benefit humans. And so what she's saying is out of all the other men, so first of all, let's take it to the practical. All the other men, they only interact with me to benefit them. You're the only man that interacts with me to benefit me because I can go to your tree and I can get fruit that sustains me. Spiritually speaking, all the other gods want you to worship them for them. God is the only one that did so much for us. In other words, worship me, not for me, worship me because it'll help you. So when God asks us to worship him and when God asks us to live righteous, all it does is help us. It's really not for him because he doesn't need it. So he's like a fruit tree in the midst of the forest. It's the only tree I can go to and that I could get something that sustains me. So uh, I said it on Sunday morning that that's why even though I don't dog out other religions and people who believe other things, there's no way I would choose anything but God. Now, when you study other religions, you'll find out that people say living for God is hard. No, living for some of these other gods are hard. Uh, even uh, those who are in uh, the Muslim religion, Islam, they have to pray five times a day facing a certain way, doing a certain thing. It's, it's, it's very rigid. Uh, their, their period of Ramadan and fasting is very, very rigid. The freedom we have in the gospel is different. It's for us. It's in, in other words, I don't have to pray to God for him. God doesn't need my prayers. He only tells me to pray to him because he's trying to get something to me. So you choose whatever God you want. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve Jehovah, Yahweh, because he's the only God that did everything for us, that lived, died, and rose again for us and produces fruit that we can uh, grow from. A prime example is right now. You guys understand that. You have availed yourself to online Bible study or you're in the building. And yes, we are studying the Bible, but we always get so much out of it that it actually makes us feel better. In other words, we come to church out of uh, maybe an obligation or I need to go to church. But when I go there, I get blessed. I get fed. It's like I actually feel better. I feel like I'm growing. So when I put effort into God, he blows my mind. The scripture says, draw nigh to God and he'll draw nigh to you. He's the only tree in the forest that will feed us with his fruit. All right. So <coughs> now I have to go all the way to the central like we did uh, on Sunday. And this is, it, it's difficult for me because I have to be very careful in how I say it, uh, especially when I'm, I'm doing it on Sunday morning. On Bible study, I can be a little more clear, a little more graphic, but honestly, it's awkward for me because uh, I, I don't know y'all like that. I love y'all, but I don't know what y'all got going on in, behind closed doors. So I have to be careful what I talk about, but I have to be honest what's in the scripture. So coming off of what she said, she says that that you're like an apple tree among the forest. And then she makes a statement and we're going to uh, put it up. Actually, it's, it's still connected to the same verse. It's the full part of the verse. It says, I enjoy sitting in my lover's shadow, 
his fruit is so sweet to my taste. So uh, for years of reading that, I never knew what many scholars believed and what many scholars share. So when I say scholars, I'm talking about people who've actually studied the Bible, theologians, they write things, they write commentaries. And so as a pastor, uh, in order to me to make sure that I'm giving people the best of the word of God, I try to study from all the angles and look at what people say. And over time, you start seeing consistent things pop up. When you when you see something about scripture, one person says it, sometimes that's just like an offshoot revelation. You never really listen to that. But when you have five, six, seven, eight different people saying things, you, you kind of have to pay attention to it. So I can't remember. It was probably five or six, seven years ago that I first uh, got a clue of that. And then there's some stuff later in, in the book. Basically, what many scholars believe is that this is the first place that it shows that oral sex is not a uh, thing that God would be against. So growing up and, and hearing people talk about sexuality, I've heard people say, the mouth is only for praising God and kissing and eating. That's it. But they, they wouldn't give you much anything else. And so everything else seemed to be a sin. But when people look at it, at, at it in scholars, when they begin to look at the Hebrew context, now there's some that still do not agree with this. There's some that, that don't. But I have to bring it up because there's so many people that talk about it. So, so it does seem to suggest here and several other places in this book that oral sex is a human expression of sexuality between a loving relationship that possibly would be okay and sanctioned by God. What we say, and what I say as a leader, when you're married, you take things between you, your spouse, and God, and you, you, you leave that there. However, I bring it up because when it comes to our human sexuality, we have been so condemned in church by what we may have felt, or what we may have been triggered by, or what we may have done in the past. And I'm here to let you know that sex was made to reflect the, the relationship between God and his people. So it may not be as nasty as people taught us. So before they would say, y'all just, y'all just nasty. Y'all need to get saved because you're nasty. Well, maybe I'm not nasty. Maybe I'm just human. And maybe you need to tell me more about my humanity and then teach me how to control it for the proper time. But stop making everybody feel like they're nasty. They're dirty. Well, you just fast, girl, you just fast. There are a lot of girls who grew up in the church and ran away from the church and did things because they were told all the time, you just fast. You just he look at you walking around, switching around the church. I'm not switching. I just got big hips. It's not my fault. And so now that I'm a pastor and a leader, I don't want to be as doggish as the sanctified church was, us, was with us. Now, some other uh, churches may have been different. I can only speak who, how I grew up. I grew up in the sanctified church, and everything was a sin. Everything you thought was a sin. Everything you watched was a sin. And it's true, some of those things can lead us to sin, but understanding that the Bible talks about some of these things, and what we need to do is take these things to God in prayer. God, what would please you with my sexuality? Stop letting, letting the world drive it. So the problem I have is that 
the church taught us that we were just nasty people. So we turned to the world. And the world is like, if it feels good, do it. Well, that, those are two extremes. We need to find a healthy balance. God, what do, are you saying about my sexuality? What are you saying about the feelings that I have? Do they come from a godly place? If I have been touched when I shouldn't as a child, maybe that drove my sexuality. And that's another thing that we have to be very careful when we're calling everybody nasty and dirty and everything is an abomination. What we're not understanding is people sometimes have sexuality forced on them before time. And it opens them up to a whole world that they always can't get control of. And so when they come to the church, we shouldn't beat them up. We should be there. We should be a safe place for them to land and just help them and talk through them, uh, talk uh, them through the, the feelings that they have. It's not that they will always make the right decisions or the decisions that we want, but get them to understand they are not dirty, nasty people. They're just human. You're human. Single people, if you wake up horny, you are just human. Married folk, you wake up horny, you're just human. You can still be holy and horny. That's part of your hormones. That's part of who you are. And we at church, at this church, are not here to beat you up. However, we do want you to prayerfully walk through your sexuality. If you are male, I don't want you running through all the women in the church. I, I would have something to say to you. I don't think that's right. I don't want you coming here playing and praying on the women. If you are a female, I don't want you running through all the men in the church. I don't want you flirting with somebody else's husband just because you think you look good. No, we, we ought to have some discipline about ourselves because if we're going to live our vision every day in love, there are certain things we should not be doing no matter what we feel because it harms people. And so I, I still believe we ought to do things in a righteous way, no matter what we find in Scripture. Somebody says, oh, I see that in Scripture. I think oh, it's a possibility oral sex is okay, so I'm going to go do any and everything. No, that's not what I'm preaching. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm trying to alleviate you from some pressure, but with great freedom comes great responsibility. Certain things you should and shouldn't be doing because their consequences. So that, I think I think that's enough. That, that's a little more detailed than I talked about on Sunday, but just putting it out there that uh, God is not as uptight as we've made him to be, but let's not go to that other extreme and just get wild. And I've seen it on both extremes. I've seen it where you, the church is real, real strict. And when that happens, what happens is people still do stuff it just gets to be secret. There's a whole bunch of secret stuff that goes on. Then I've seen it the other way where people are real, real liberal, and they're just, just you let anything go. No, we don't want to be that. We want to have that healthy place in the middle. But the, the, the purpose is figuring out, God, what are you calling for me? All right, so that's enough of the central practical side. Let's flip it on the spiritual side. Since we know the man in here represents God, the scripture says it this way. It says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So when we connect with God, God is asking for us to have a experience with him beyond just our head. God is good 
all the time, all the time, God is good. That's easy to say in church, but do you know, have you experienced his goodness? Have you tasted his goodness? Have you taken time to be with God in the secret place? Because let's put it up side by side. It says, I enjoy sitting in my lover's shadow. Well, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty, which is Psalms 91, 1. So have you spent some time in the secret place of God? Are you keeping secrets or are you spending time in the secret place with God? Are you tasting the goodness of the Lord? Or do you only wait for Pastor Andre to come up with a good sermon to get you through? Or do you take that and study it? Do you eat on it? Do you go into a place with God, a private moment with God? Do you have a secret place and moment with God? When when you deal with couples who are married, especially married couples with kids, when they are together intimately, sexually, usually they go behind closed doors. They don't want their kids in there. They, they try to do some things to make it private because it's sacred, it's intimate. Same thing with God. There are some things you cannot get in a church service. There's some things you cannot get with, with your, your girlfriends around, your boyfriends around, at the bowling alley or watching a movie. No, you need some moments, you and God. And it is in those moments that you begin to taste God. I can always tell when people have spent private time with God because it shows up publicly. They can hardly contain themselves because they've had real experiences with God. And the problem with church is people get into a routine and they get into a run-of-the-mill routine and they have no real experience with God. So I'll lift my hands if the organ hits the right tune. I'll feel the goosebumps if the drum and the singer do do the right thing at the right moment. But what about when there is no organ, there is no drum, there is no preacher, there is no usher, there's no sanctuary. What about just you and God? Can you have those moments? So we beg of you to taste of God, to, to experience God. Uh, one preacher put it this way, practice the presence of God. In other words, when you're by yourself, that's when you can go for broke. Because when you're in a public setting, sometimes you get a little self-conscious that I'm the only one with my hands all the way up and I'm crying uh, uncontrollably. So when I look around and nobody else is crying, uh, I've had moments where I'm standing up praising God. And then when I finally open my eyes, I'm the only one standing. Well, you know what I do? I go ahead and sit down. It's just you get self-conscious and you sit down. But when you're by yourself with God and it's just you and God, you can do whatever feels right in that moment. You can kiss God if you want to. You you can say what whatever you want. You can talk. It, it's it's intimate. It's special. Uh, I remember this having this moment uh, with God when I was very young in uh, ministry. I was at, uh, I wasn't even at General Motors. I, I was at another job and I was driving uh, a fork truck and I, I was talking to God, but I had run out of words. Uh, that's why uh, I haven't taught this much, but that's why our prayer language is important where we can speak in tongues. Because when you run out of English words, uh, sometimes you need something else too. But I, I wasn't that proficient in my prayer language at the time. So I had just run out of words. I, I, I said everything I could. God, I extol you. I exalt you. But I had just run out of words. And I said this. I said, God, 
I kiss you. And then about a minute later, I was like, that was dumb. That, I'm like, that was corny. It, 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 it came out in the moment, but then I felt self-conscious about it because I was like, that was stupid. And so then I drove uh, to the next, uh, not block, but in the building, the next aisle way. And something hit me so, so fast and so strong that my whole tow motor shook. Because if you, if you have ever driven one of those, the way the, the uh, pedals and the brake works, that if you jerk, the whole thing is going to jerk. So it hit me like that, and I spoke in tongues for like a few seconds. It just hit me. I was like, whoa. Then I heard God say, I kissed you back. I was like, wow. I mean, it, it like blew my mind because in, in that moment, I thought I had said the dumbest thing ever, and God just gave something back to me. And it was, it was an experience that, that I just cherished because I began to realize that the relationship was deeper than the four walls of the building. It was personal. Nobody could take that away from me because it was just me and God. And somebody could say, well, I don't believe that happened. I don't care what you believe. I know what I experienced. And when you have personal experience with God, it changes everything. So that's the greater uh, truth that is being taught in uh, Song of Songs. But we, we still have to pick up some of the other things because it uh it frees us up when it comes to our sexuality. All right, so let's look at where she speaks to the women. It says, he brought me to the banqueted house and his banner over me was love. If you have ever uh, been in children's church and sang that, that song, uh, it, there's a song that says, he feeds me at his banqueting table, his banner over me is love. I am his and he is mine. Well, when you look, it, a lot of that comes from this chapter. It comes from uh, chapter two. But the uh, the historical context is the way that they had the, the opening. They had indoor seating for food, but they also had outdoor banquets. Very similar to what we see today. You, know, you have some weddings where the receptions are inside and some at the summer months are right. The reception is outside. Well, they would have that a big, long banqueting table but there would be a banner and it would say to Althea. In other words, the king would say, this is for you. So everybody who came knew that it was for that individual. And so she is saying that of the king, but spiritually there's a banner over us. The Bible calls God Jehovah Nissi, which means the Lord God, our banner. So there's a banner that hangs over our head that says we are loved. Now, since it is a invisible spiritual banner, who sees it the most is our demons and devils that try to fight us. And the reason why they attack us is because he loves us. But also banners represent victory. If you go in any stadium that has a team, especially basketball stadiums and stadiums that have roofs, you'll see banners hanging in the rafters to show the results of their greatest victories. If they have won NBA championships, or if they've won Eastern Conference titles, Western Conference titles, whatever, Super Bowls, you will see that somewhere hanging, a banner somewhere. And for us, there, the banner is a banner of victory that's saying we won. We've won over depression. We've won over lust. We've won over divorce. We've won over setbacks. We've won over the pandemic. And even though we don't always feel like a winner, there's a banner over us that says we win. 
And that's always beautiful for us to understand. So strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, because I am weak with love. Verse six, my lover's left arm is under my head and his right arm holds me. Once again, this is very sensual language. It is showing that cuddling position. But for us, uh, on the spiritual implication, we know we are in the safety of the arms of God. I've often said it uh, in preaching. I I, I say that when God will wrap his arms around you, of course, you don't feel physical arms. So it's a spiritual thing that I'm saying. But there are times and moments where you just feel God's presence in your life and you just don't feel like you're by yourself. Uh, I bring it up all the time in Bible study is the, the poem about the footprints where the man says that in the time when I seen one set of footprints was in my worst troubles. And Jesus speaks to him. It is then that I carried you. The reason why it goes from two sets of footprints to one is because I have you in my arms. And this language is very central, but it speaks to the same thing to us that God has cradled us in his arms. And so we can rest and trust in him even when things are uncertain. And most of our life is uncertain because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what the next day is going to bring. But having that faith that God is going to bring me through, he's going to bring me out, he's going to carry me through, he's going to carry me out, that is love without boundaries. No matter what I am facing, God is holding me. My lover's left arm is under my head and his right arm holds me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. And so we we talked about that, how uh, it's basically uh, saying she's telling the other young women that this relationship that I'm having with him is at the proper time. If you start this before time, specifically the sexual, sensual part, if you get in that before time, it it has a way of, be, of being empty. It doesn't please you. It doesn't satisfy. That's the worst thing about sex is that outside of the right context, it never satisfies. Uh, a lot of times for men, all it does is make men chase it more. And then they end up destroying women's lives because they're always chasing something. Uh, it, it's very similar to to drugs where it shifts things in your mind because when you feel certain things, your brain starts trying to duplicate what you, you have felt because we have pleasure centers in the brain. That's why drugs are called dope because we have something called dopamine in the brain. And so the brain is told to keep triggering those things again. And when you do anything outside of the context of God in the right time, what happens is you run the risk of becoming addicted to something that will not please and satisfy. So this is where we went to Sunday and we talked about the scientific. So I'll just read through some of that. It was in the enduring word commentary. It says in terms of relationship, it means let our love progress and grow until it's matured and fruitful, making a generally pleasing relationship. (coughs) In other words, don't let us go too fast. From her wish, an excellent principle can be drawn for courtship. A strong desire to express love physically should be present. In other words, that should be right. And I say it all the time, marry people who are not 
together sexually, something is wrong with that marriage. It should be present, but not until marriage should it be ultimately fulfilled. Uh, according to Dr. Jeffrey Sloss, there's a brain hormone that mediates the feeling of being in love or being infatuated. One of these neurotransmitters is known as phenethylamine, and it floods our brain when we fall in love. It is also in fairly high quantities in chocolate. This chemical gives us feelings of exhilaration and thrill and well-being, and in high amounts can lead to a loss of appetite. This chemical works somewhat in a cycle, at least in a relationship. At the beginning of the relationship, it spikes up. After four or five years, it begins to decline. Across cultures, there is a spike in the rate of divorce at about four and a half years of marriage. Some suggest that relationships have two major phases, attraction and attachment. The attraction phase is powerful and the kind of condition that makes one say, I am lovesick. Yet the key to a long-term fulfilling relationship is staying with it past the attraction phase into the attachment phase. There are some counselors who devote almost their entire counseling practice trying to help what they call love junkies. People who are so addicted to the phenethylamine phase that they bounce from relationship rush to relationship rush without ever really coming into a greater, longer-lasting relationship fulfillment. So that gives us a lot of detail. I won't explain all that because of time, but it basically talks about the infatuation stage of love that we feel as humans. And when people don't understand that that is actually scientific, then what happens is when it begins to wane, they many times think, well, I fell out of love. Well, no, this is the time where you have to become more disciplined in your love because now you're out of the feeling stage and now you're into the decision stage. And this helps people in marriage because it used to be that they would call it, especially for, for husbands, the seven-year itch. Sometime around the seven years into the marriage, there would be some type of uh, oh, frustration and, and midlife crisis. And so there was a lot of divorces around that time. But it has shifted even lower to the four-and-a-half-year mark. And so when you go into any relationship, not just relationship, when you go into anything, you have to understand there comes a certain point where the newness wears off and you are stuck with the reality of it. Uh, I, I'm thinking of things like new car. You have a new car, you're excited about the new car, but the new car smell wears off and the bills are still there. So you have to, when you make the initial purchase, you have to understand this is for the long term. And when you are in uh, dating relationships, you should be dating for long term. There's nothing wrong with going out on a date and getting a free meal and a free movie. But as trying to put your life together in the journey of life, you have to understand that you, you don't want to be intoxicated with the feeling of love because you can make decisions in that space that once that wears off, you're stuck. You've already made commitments. And so we have to be very careful of that. But it's good to understand that it's human. It's a part of the chemical makeup of who we are. Many of us have made bad decisions in love or wrapped up in love or wrapped up in lust. And it's okay to understand that and say, oh, okay, for the next time, I know how to handle that. So 
even if I'm in a situation now, I'm willing to slow things down and not make too hard, uh, rash decisions because it could be, uh, as the ghetto boy said, my mind is playing tricks on me. It could be the chemicals in my mind. And what you don't want to do is make lasting decisions that are hard to get out of uh, in those first few moments of love, specifically if you have rushed into a sexual relationship early in the courtship, that is just going to complicate things because it's going to be hard for you to really make clear decisions because your whole body, your whole emotions, and even your spiritualities are now linked together and it's hard to make good decisions. I'm not here to beat you up about it, of course, uh, like I always say, but just know the truth scientifically that's why this woman is telling the other women, don't awake this too early. Don't get this train started too quick because it's a downhill train and it's hard to stop it once it's started. Those of you who are single, please protect your sexuality, not because it's a sin, but more because of the health of the matter. Your mental health many times is tied to your sexual relationships and how you are left lonely after the breakup. So the less you do, the better off you are. So I wish that the church taught it from the standpoint of health instead of from the standpoint of sin. People would have felt less condemned about it. They just made everything sin. But really, Sex before marriage is not about sin. It's about, is it the healthiest thing emotionally for you? Is it the healthiest thing physically for you? And many times when you look at it, even though it may feel good and feel right, it's not the healthiest thing for you because it pushes you into a place where it's hard to make good, sound, solid decisions. So uh, I just, just want you to understand that. Uh, then she speaks again, and from here it it is totally uh, spiritual, and so so we don't have time to go into all of that. So I'll pick up probably the uh, the last few verses. Let's let's start about verse thirteen. Uh, Young figs are growing on the fig trees. Smell the vines in bloom. Get up, my darling, my beautiful one. Let's go away. Talked about how God is trying to take us to another level. And then it says, on, oh, my dove, in the clefts of the rock, in the crannies of the cliff, let me see your face, let me hear your voice, for your voice is sweet and your face is lovely. I will speak to this just momentarily, that we are crazy about, when we are really in love with God, we are crazy about the voice of God coming into our lives. It's good when we hear God speak. We hear him speak through sermons. We hear him speak through songs. We hear him speak inside of ourselves. But it's even greater to him when he hears us speak. So us voicing back to him. So it's very important that we voice to him our love for him and what he means to us, our thanksgiving. Don't wait till Sunday morning, but it should be a daily occurrence where you acknowledge God and you give him your voice because it means something very great to him. All right. Uh, verse 15 uh, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyard. Our vineyard is now in bloom. This is where we get the saying, it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. So we have to remember the, the little things. 
And here's how we're going to close. My lover is mine and I am his. My lover feeds among the lilies. Here's ways that I am his and he is mine. I am his by the gift of his father. I'm his by purchase, paid for by his own blood. I'm his by conquest. He fought for me and won me. He is mine by surrender because I gave myself to him. This is from the Enduring Word Commentary. And then we're going to close with something that Charles uh, Spurgeon preached, a great uh, preacher from years ago. He says, I am his, his today in the house of worship and his tomorrow in the house of business. His as a singer in the sanctuary and his as a toiler in the workshop. His when I am preaching and equally his when I am walking the streets. His while I live, his when I die. His when my soul ascends and my body lies in the grave. The whole personality of my life is altogether his forever and ever. Verse 17. While the day breathes its last breath and the shadows run away, turn my lover be like a gazelle or a young deer on the cleft of the mountains. The, uh, the, the uh, Hebrew is the mountains of Bether, which were mountains that were separated. They were separated by, it, it, was, it was known as the mountains of dissection. They were dissected. They were broken up because there were valleys in between the mountains. But if the gazelle is able to get from mountain to mountain, what that means is that no amount of space was stopping the gazelle from getting on the mountain. So what the woman is saying to her lover, I want you to be the same way, and I want you to let anything stop you from loving me, no obstacle. And so understanding that, we understand that God's love has no boundaries when it comes to us. It goes through as much as possible to always make us feel that we are in God's care. And that includes when we sometimes forget and put our sensuality above our spirituality. God still loves us, restores us, gives us a chance. There are many people who have had sex before marriage and God just cleaned it all up and it doesn't mean a thing to him because he loves us. There are some people who never had sex before marriage. They were virgins when they were married, but they did all kinds of other things. They were, they were gossipers. They were evil. God has a way of cleaning all of that up because simply his love knows no bounds. It is a love without boundaries. And when we remember that, then it'll keep us in love with our father. All right, let's, let's pray. Dear gracious heavenly father, God, we thank you, praise you, love you, honor you. God, we appreciate you for your love toward us and our love toward you. I am yours and you are mine. And your banner over me is love. Your love is without boundaries. God, I'm praying that you would help us in our human sexuality. God, as we express it the best way we know how, sometimes we don't always get it right, but I'm praying that you would hold us in the palm of your hand, that you would wrap us in your arms, and that you would not, not allow us to jeopardize anything, but you would allow us to always walk according to the grace and the mercy and the love you have for us. And I thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. God bless you dearly. I want to say thanks for watching and uh, we will see you next week. Much love to you all. Good evening.